you grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12. The title of the message today is Hosanna. That'll make sense in just a moment. But we're going to be in just uh, verses 12 through 19 uh, today because it is such an important topic. We are going to hit the brakes and we are going to talk about the very first Palm Sunday, like five or six months early. How's everybody doing? Good, good. As you're turning in your Bibles, I want to thank Pastor Andrew Sturkin for sharing the Word of God with you guys last weekend. Uh, he did a great job. And so if you're wondering, uh, my wife and I on Saturday night went down to our sending church. So 18 and a half years ago, uh, Calvary Jupiter, Pastor Dan Plored, and they're still going strong. They just built a new building two years ago, and God's working down there. And so, uh, by the way, he's the one with Chuck Smith who taught me how to teach the Word of God, and so I'm forever grateful for these guys. But um, we went down to our sending church, and uh, 18 and a half years ago, he brought my wife and I up to the platform, laid hands on us, prayed over us, and they sent us to Port St. Lucie to start this church. And so we did, and they... Uh, the home of Pastor Lee and Julie Holly with just a handful of people. And uh, we've been going now 18 and a half years in the power of the Spirit, and we're so grateful uh, for the amazing team that God has put around my wife and I on both sides of the street, the church and the school, and we're glad to see what God is doing on the weekends, but then all, uh, Monday through Friday at the school as well. And how many of you guys know he's just getting started? And so, man, I am just excited about the future. And so... Um, always try to get back to our sending church every couple of years and say hi to everybody. And so um, I want to um, um, ask you now, are you at John chapter 12? Okay, so we're gonna go to the Lord in prayer. I wanna ask you guys um, to please engage your minds this morning. Think about this. Jesus said to, and the Old Testament said to, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, what's the next word? mind and strength. And so as Christians, we never check our minds at the door when we come into church. And so we want to engage our minds because what God has done is God's given us this amazing revelation to instruct us about who he is and what his will is. And not just that, it instructs us about creation, um, the fall, redemption, and restoration. And so what a amazing gift we have in the Word of God, and we get to teach it today. And so I'm going to be sharing historical background with you, cultural background with you. At the very end of the message, we're going to apply all of it to our lives. And so if you don't have a Bible, feel free to pull it up on your smartphone or mobile device, and I want to encourage you guys to follow along in God's Word. And so, Father, we thank you for this time to be together. We're so grateful, Lord, for the amazing time we had to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, you're worthy of every note of every song that comes from our hearts and from our lips. And so we look forward to the day, one day in heaven, where we can join all nations and people groups, um, the redeemed of the Lord, and we can say so in heaven, and we can worship you uh, forever and ever. But until then, Lord, help us to stand in the gap. Help us to be faithful followers of Christ. And Lord, teach us how to live our lives. And we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus and God's, all God's people said. All right, so every year in March or April, the Sunday prior to Easter Sunday, people all over the world uh, um, celebrate a special day known as Palm Sunday. All right, so what is Palm Sunday all about? If you're taking notes, I've defined it for you on the screen. Palm Sunday 
commemorates the day when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Why? To publicly present himself as the Messiah. Now, you need to know that that triumphal entry caused a huge stir all around Jerusalem and the vicinity of Jerusalem among thousands and thousands of people, both believers and unbelievers. And so later in the message, we're gonna see that as Jesus presented himself as the Messiah publicly, that there were some in the crowd who were believers and they got all excited about Jesus, listen to this, for the right reason. And we wanna follow their example. But here's the sad part. Most in the crowd, they got all excited about Jesus for the wrong reason. Now, how excited did both groups get? Check out what John said in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 13. It says they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And notice this, they cried out. I mean, they're shouting. They're getting um, really excited here. They're celebrating. And they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so suffice it to say, these people got very, very excited. And since they waved, top line, branches of palm trees at the Lord, that's where we get the name for the special day, Palm Sunday. Now, if you're wondering why I'm talking about this in October, when the next Palm Sunday isn't until April 2nd, it's because we are a Calvary Chapel-affiliated church. So what does that mean? That means that we take very seriously the heritage that we received from Pastor Chuck Smith way back in the 60s when he planted the first Calvary Chapel, and that is we teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Guess what? Our next passage in our verse-by-verse -verse study of John is the very first Palm Sunday, and so that's why we're talking about that, uh, this subject five or six months early. So right now, if you're looking at John chapter 12, verse 12, can you just say amen so I know you're there? All right, so here we go. We're gonna read all the way through verse 19 since it's a short passage. It says that the next day, that's a Sunday, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Notice, please, that it's a large crowd. By the way, everybody look at me real quick. All of us have seen the Jesus movies in the past. I'm not talking about The Chosen. Uh, but what we've all seen in the past some of the Jesus movies and there's like you know 15 or 20 men and women with bathrobes waving palm branches. Divorce that from your mind this morning. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is a large crowd and I'll tell you how large here in just a little while. Verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Okay, so we are in the New Testament, right? And the New Testament was written in the first century AD after where we are in the Bible, which is AD 33. Okay, so when it says, just as it is written, what is John talking about? What testament? The Old Testament. So we're going back now in our Bibles 500 years or so to the prophet Zechariah who made a messianic prophecy about how Israel could recognize their king, their Messiah, when he comes. And so look at it, verse 15. Fear not, 
daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion is uh, another name for the people of, of Jerusalem. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold your, and shout out the next word, please. King. That is who Jesus is, by the way. Behold, your king is coming, and this is how you can recognize him, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him in the Old Testament and had been done to him. And so the disciples as they see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey, at first they're not really getting everything, they're not getting it, right? But then after, later, Jesus dies, is buried, rises from the dead, and then ascends back to the right hand of the Father. When Jesus went up, who came down? You tell me. The Holy Spirit, day of Pentecost, the church is born. Now the Holy Spirit has sealed us to the day of redemption. He lives inside of believers' hearts, and he gives, one of the things he does is he gives illumination so that we can understand the scriptures. And so after Jesus was glorified and the spirit came, that's when the disciples got it. And we're gonna talk a lot about that when we get to the upper room discourse uh, in John um, 15, 16, and 17. But nonetheless, we look now at verse 17 of John chapter 12. It says that the crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, you guys remember that about, what, three, four weeks ago we taught on that? The crowd that was there when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, I love this, they continued to bear witness. They're talking about it. And verse 18 says the reason why the crowd, now let me ask you again, is this a small crowd or a large crowd? Large. So the reason why this large crowd went out to meet Jesus was that they heard he had done this sign. And so the people who saw Lazarus shuffling out of the tomb after his corpse had been dead for four days, right? That's what corpses are. They're dead people. <laughs> and so they see the miracle, and what do they do? They're going to talk about it. And so they spread the news that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead like wildfire all over Jerusalem. And so that's the reason this big crowd comes out. Verse 19 they're always there, aren't they? The party poopers. So the Pharisees looked at all this, and they said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. All right, so let's break it down. Verse 12, the next day, that's a Sunday, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. All right, you guys tell me, what feast were the Jews getting ready to observe here in our Bibles? Passover. How do you know? Well, verse one of chapter 12 in the context says it's the feast of Passover. So if you're new to the Bible, the feast of Passover celebrated God's deliverance of the ancient Israelites, book of Exodus, from the death angel, the destroyer, and subsequently from Egyptian slavery. That's the feast of Passover. And so that happened 1,400 years or so prior to where we are in the New Testament. You guys, most of you remember the story. Since Moses and the Israelites took, listen to this, the blood of spotless lambs, and they took that blood and they applied it to the doorposts and lintel of their homes. By the way, isn't that beautiful picture? 
the blood of spotless lambs applied on the doorpost and lintel. By the way, what symbol do you have there? The cross and the blood of the lamb 1,400 years prior to Christ. Because of that, the destroyer, the death angel, when he flew over those homes and he saw the blood, what did he do? He passed over those homes, hence the feast of Passover. But the Egyptians, since they did not have any blood to protect them, since they didn't have any blood to save them, since they didn't have any blood to deliver them, the destroyer, the death angel, brought judgment upon them and killed their firstborn sons, including the firstborn son of Pharaoh, and that's why he finally, after 12 plagues, relented and told Moses, get, get out of here, you and your people. And so the book of Exodus, they made their exodus away from Egyptian slavery, the rest is history. So Passover was a monumental celebration. And you need to know that Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world came to Jerusalem once a year for Passover. Okay, so think about this with me for a moment, right? You have, uh, what empire is reigning over the world right now in our Bibles, first century AD, Rome, right? So it was Babylon earlier, and then it was the Medo-Persians, and then it was the Greeks, and then it was the Romans. So that's where we are right now. Rome is the power of the day. And I want you to imagine the Mediterranean Sea, right? And then imagine North Africa, and imagine Israel. So imagine um, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, Syria, Asia Minor, Bithynia, uh, modern-day Turkey. Imagine Macedonia and Greece. Imagine the boot, Italy, right, and Rome. Okay, and so what do you have all around the Mediterranean? You have the Roman Empire, and you need to know that Jews had dispersed scattered all over the Roman Empire by the thousands. It's called the diaspora. And so all those Jews, guess what happened? They would come to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Some of them would ride mules, some of them would take boats, whatever they had to do, but they got to, to Jerusalem for Passover. How large was this crowd? Okay, forget the old Jesus movies. <laughs> Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, said at one particular Passover in the first century, are you ready for this? 2.7 million people were in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. That's a lot of people, especially 2,000 years ago. And so it's not unreasonable to assume that there was over two million people at this particular Passover in AD 33. So how many of the two plus million people had heard of Jesus? Let's think about this for a moment. How many of the two plus million people that were there in Jerusalem, the vicinity of Jerusalem, had heard of Jesus? Well, the way that we can answer that question is to think about, for the better part, no, actually more than three years, Jesus had been performing all of these mighty miracles. You think anybody talks when a genuine miracle happens? Yeah. And not just that, he had been giving hundreds and hundreds of mighty, powerful messages to the people for three plus Years, and so based on that, based on the amazing, astounding ministry of Jesus Christ, I think it's not unreasonable to assume that there are hundreds of thousands of Jews in and around Jerusalem that had heard of Jesus Christ. And listen, many of them had heard just recently 
because we just read it a little while in our Bibles, that after Jesus raised the dead man Lazarus from the grave, what happened? The people who saw it went and spread the news, and that's the main reason so many people are there uh, rejoicing and celebrating on this first Palm Sunday. Is all this making sense to you guys? All right, so let's go ahead and look at verse 13 now. It says that this large crowd took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. All right, so Jesus, riding on a young donkey, fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy, as I said earlier, in Zechariah 9.9. We'll put it on the screen. Okay, so this is the Old Testament. This is a messianic prophecy, one of many that were literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, shout out the next two words, your king. Let's try that again. Shout out, your king, on the count of three, one, two, three, is coming to you. Do you think anybody's excited about the king coming? Yeah. And he is just in having salvation. He's lowly, and he's riding on what kind of animal? A donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so in ancient times, when a king was declaring war on a city, he rode into that city riding on a large horse. So why in the world is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey, a little donkey, a donkey that had never been ridden before? Well, there's at least two reasons why a donkey. Number one, to publicly fulfill Zechariah 9.9. Everybody listen to me. Jesus Christ was very cognizant of Zechariah 9.9. And so what was he doing? He was purposely riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, to publicly tell everybody, I'm your king. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. It is me. But also, he wanted to show, number two, to the occupying Roman forces that his intentions were what? Peaceful. And so Jerusalem's population, as I already said, swelled once a year during the annual Feast of Passover, actually uh, three Jewish feasts where they would come, but it swelled during the Feast of Passover. And so this crowd, about two million plus people, and you need to know that Jewish nationalistic fervor is at an all-time high right now. Everybody's really into patriotic Israel. So who's the occupying force over Israel, the what empire? So the Roman soldiers, they're on high alert right now and they're ready to squash any kind of riot that may occur. But they look and what do they see? They see this guy and he's riding, everybody's cheering, but he's riding on a little donkey. So they're not too concerned. In fact, they're probably amused and they're probably making jokes about it. They had no idea who Jesus was. And so I want you to picture the scene. You guys hear me say this all the time. I want you to go back 2,000 years ago and act like you are one of those people in the Kidron Valley and all of a sudden you look up, right? 
So let me give you the, the um, topography. You have the Mount of Olives. By the way, in Israel, mountains are actually hills and seas are actually lakes, okay? And so it's not a mountain, it's a little hill. And so you have the Mount of Olives going down into the Kidron Valley, going up to Mount Moriah, where Abraham was gonna sacrifice Isaac. And there, what do you have on top? You have the amazing Jewish temple and you have Jerusalem. And so Jesus, can you see it in your mind's eye? He's coming down the Mount of Olives on the back of this young donkey. The Kidron Valley is filled with Jews. And what's happening right now? They are going crazy. They are going wild. In the ancient times, when a king approached, it was customary for people to take out off their outer garments and lay them on the road as the king came and rode over their garments. It's just an act of respect. According to Mark's parallel account, so we have four gospels, right? We have the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then we have John, okay? This event, it's so important. This is why I'm taking a lot of time on this event. It's in all four gospels. So Mark's account, parallel account. By the way, I want to see if anybody knows this. Who did Mark get his information from to write his gospel? Peter. Thank you guys for being students of the word, by the way. And where was Peter right now? He was there. He was an eyewitness. I'll say it again. <laughs> the New Testament is not fairy tales. Pie in the sky by and by. It's written record from eyewitnesses. Okay, written within the first century, when it happened, all right? And so um, what you gotta understand is that Mark tells us that's exactly what happened, all right? Check it out. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread, here it is, leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And so as the Lord approached the city, people were taking out off their outer garments and laying them down on the road before he rode over them on the donkey. And not only that, they spread leafy branches on the road as well, most likely branches from many date palms that are common in that area and they're still growing in Israel today. Now, what were they shouting at Jesus? Well, here's what they were shouting. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, you guys really wanna go there in your mind's eye? I'm gonna make you guys the thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews in the Kidron Valley. And on the count of three, by the way, this is a contest between all the three services here at Calvary. Last night, mm, not so good. This morning, they almost blew me through the roof. So we're gonna see how good 11 a.m. is this morning. You guys all had your coffee? Okay, and so you are among the thousands of Jews. Remember, western slope of the Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane, right? You, you know that whole story. Kidron Valley, you're down here in the Kidron Valley, all of us. Mount Moriah, Jewish temple. Here comes Jesus on a little donkey. Everybody's going crazy. They're waving their palm branches. And on the count of three, you're gonna shout this. I know some of you are extroverts. You're ready. You're, you're like, can you just stop talking, Pastor? I wanna say this. And, and, and some of you guys are introverts, and so you're, you're like gonna be like, Hosanna. Okay, so 
Act like you're actually seeing Jesus. And I gotta, yeah, you're ready. I gotta, this is funny. And I gotta get the rhythm here, right? Because last night it was, it was crazy. It sounded like everybody's speaking in tongues, okay? So, um, okay, so this is how it's gonna be. One, don't do it now. One, two, three. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, ready? One, two, three, go. All right, yeah. Now, right. You're getting the taste. It's not the B-rated Jesus movie from like 30 years ago, right? Now, there's people watching us. Hi, everybody. And they want to do it from their homes right now. And so we're going to do it again with them. Okay, and this time, that was amazing, by the way. You tied first service, but now you have a chance to actually win. Okay, and so on the count of three, one, two, three, go. All right, praise the Lord. Awesome, awesome. My 88-year-old mom is saying that from her couch right now over in Tampa. Now, where does that come from? That comes from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm, right? The psalms were written about 1,000 years B.C., a lot of them by David, and some of them were messianic psalms. What does that mean? That means that they were psalms about the coming Messiah. So here's the Old Testament. How many of you guys know you'll never understand the New Testament until you get into the Old Testament? And that's why I encourage you to go with us to Israel so you can really understand the Old Testament so you understand the New Covenant and the New Testament. So here it is, Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will be all bummed out. No, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now. Yasana, Hosanna. I pray, O Lord. O Lord, pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I love the phrase, this is the day the Lord has made. So for many, many years in my devotions, often the way I'll start my devotions, I thank God for those long time ago, right, 30 years ago, who taught me this principle, that when you come to the Lord in the morning, right, coffee in hand. How many of you guys know you gotta have coffee when you have your devotions? And we all know why God loves coffee, because he wrote the book of Hebrews. All right, so... We all know that. And so you go to the Lord in the morning with your coffee and you don't start by saying, God, give me this, 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 and this. No. We enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And so for so many years, I've been saying so often, starting out my devotions, Lord, this is the day that you have made. I'm gonna make a choice to rejoice. I don't care how I feel this morning. I'm gonna make a choice to rejoice and be glad in it. I got that tough meeting later on. I got this tough situation that I'm dealing with. I got whatever's going on in my life, right? But God, I am going to make a choice to rejoice because you're good all the time. And that's what you gotta start doing. Listen, get to know Jesus. There's nothing better. There's no one better. Get to know Jesus. Start having daily devotions with him. Make an appointment. Get up early. Get your coffee, whatever you drink, right? And uh, sit before him and, and put on your headphones and sing before him and just thank him. Start off with praise before you get into your list. And the list is important. God cares about the list. I love the phrase, save now. That's Hosanna. And I love the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's awesome. Why is Jesus so blessed? Here's why. 
because he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And so what you gotta understand is that as the people are laying down their cloaks and their palm tree branches on the road before him, as they're waving palm tree branches, thousands of them, as they're waving palm tree branches, as they're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen to this, you need to know that Jesus accepted their praise. This is one thing I find very interesting in the New Testament, that every time someone worshiped Jesus or praised Jesus, he never said, stop it! He always accepted it. What's the first commandment in the Big Ten? You shall have no other gods before me. Don't bow down to anybody or anything. Every time somebody bowed down to Jesus and worshiped him, he accepted it. Now, would any good Jew do that? No way. Did Jesus do it? Yeah, was he a good Jew? Not just a good Jew, he was God in the flesh. And that's why he accepted worship and praise. And that's why we should worship Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, with all our hearts. And so, we think about this, that um, they're shouting, Jesus accepts their praise, and Luke writes about this in his parallel account. Okay, so some of the Pharisees in the crowd, Palm, first Palm Sunday, said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples, stop all this praise nonsense. And he answered, I tell you that if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What does that mean? That means he accepted their praise. That means that if that crowd of thousands of Jews would have quieted down, the rocks in the Kidron Valley would, start, would have started shouting out in praise to Jesus. Can you guys imagine that? I've told you before, a rock's crying out, greatest rock concert ever in history, right then in the first century. It would have been absolutely amazing. But it would have happened. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, God made us with a void that only he can fulfill. And the fact that we can come to him and he can fill that void causes us to praise him and worship him. And so think about this. At some point now, because we're gonna switch gears in the sermon, the mood changes, all right, at least for Jesus. So as the crowd is celebrating, all of a sudden Jesus actually starts to cry. How do you know? We know that from Luke's account. Luke 19, 41. When he drew near and saw the city, what did he do? He wept. And so while he's coming down the western slope of the Mount of Olives, he has a panoramic view of Jerusalem. And so he's looking across the Kidron Valley. If you go with us to Israel, we'll take you to that area. I don't know the exact spot, obviously, but we'll take you to that area. And now what you have is the Dome of the Rock, built by the Muslims, I think around AD 600. Okay, so this is much later than Christianity. But then you had the Jewish temple. And Herod, my goodness, did such an amazing, the guy was an absolute, um, I'm trying to be nice, I'm thinking of words I could say about Herod. He was a scoundrel, he was a murderer, he killed members of his own family, he was crazy, right? But he was an amazing architect. And whether you're talking about Masada, whether you're talking about um, the Jewish temple, um, the Makaira Fortress or whatever, his own house. By the way, if you go with us to Israel, we'll take you to his palace. They uncovered it, it's amazing. But um, Jesus is looking at the Jewish temple 
depending on what time of day it is, the sun is glistening off the gold and the silver. He sees other buildings, he sees houses, he sees um, thousands of Jews going here, there, and everywhere. And when Jesus sees all of that, instead of being glad, he's sad. So again, picture the scene, right? The crowd, they're cheering. The religious leaders, they're sneering. But the Messiah, he's tearing. Now, don't get the idea that his eyes are just getting a little moist. According to Strong's Greek lexicon, when you look up that word wept, when Jesus wept, it means to mourn, weep, lament, bewail. And so there's Jesus on the side of the Mount of, Mount of Olives on the little donkey, and he sees a panoramic view of Jerusalem, and he begins to cry so hard, he's literally sobbing. Kind of awkward, right? I don't know if the people right around him were just kind of like, whoa, what's going on right now? Now, the answer of why he's crying lies in what he spoke over Jerusalem. So Jesus is actually right now speaking over the city. This is important stuff. He says, would that you, even you, had known on, what's the next two words here? This day, this day. Now, I would love, right, to take an hour and talk about the 70 weeks of Daniel, the second, in my opinion, most amazing Old Testament prophecy other than Isaiah 53 that talks about the very day Messiah would come. Okay, I don't have time. Gotquestions.org. But nonetheless, this is his day of arrival. Would that you, Jerusalem, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. All right, so why is Jesus sobbing? Here's why, because this is Israel's special day. The Messiah, their Messiah had come and they missed it. Totally missed it. Now, think about the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, the highest government entity in Israel at that time, right, made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. What had they officially done by this time in the Bible? They had officially rejected Jesus as the Messiah. No way, no how, he's not our king, he's not our Messiah. And that's why they're telling Jesus to rebuke his disciples and make them stop praising and not just that, we know in the first century, thank God, that thousands and thousands of Jews came to Jesus as their Messiah. We praise the Lord for that. But most of the Jews did not believe in Jesus. So what is the result? The result is not peace, it's destruction. Since Israel rejected their Messiah, this is AD 33, we believe. Some say it's AD 30, I think AD 33. Uh, we'll find out in heaven, right? Let's not argue about little stuff. But in AD 33, they rejected, the uh, Sanhedrin rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Israel, most of them don't believe in Jesus, so what happens? 37 years later in the future, we come to a very significant date, and that is AD 70. And what happens in AD 70? Rome destroys Jerusalem, burns down the temple, and kills hundreds of thousands of Jews, including children. Did you guys know Jesus prophesied that before it happened? In the same passage, on the donkey, 
speaking over Jerusalem. He says, for the days will come upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies, that's the Romans, will set up a barricade around you. That's exactly what happened in AD 70. You guys can look it up later. You and, um, you and, they'll surround you and hem you in on every side. In fact, there was a great famine in the city. It was horrible. And they'll tear you down, Jesus says, to the ground. He's prophesying over the city. And this is exactly what happened in history. And how many of you guys know that when adults make bad choices, the kids suffer? Hello? Absolutely. Hey, we're, we're adults. And so none of us are perfect, but man, we need to start making responsible choices if for no other reason than for our kids. Because when we blow it, they suffer. And they're innocent victims. And because Israel rejected their Christ, children by the thousands suffered. And when Jesus saw it, he sobbed and he wept. And so what, what, what he's prophesied is exactly what happened. We'll see the next uh, phrase for the rest of the passage. It says that they will not, the Romans, will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What visitation is Jesus talking about? The visitation of the Messiah in AD 33, presenting himself as the king of Israel on the first Palm Sunday. Is all this making sense to you guys? Okay, so what he said is what happened in history. In AD 66, the Jews rebelled against the Romans. It's called the Great Jewish Revolt. And the Jews actually took back control of Jerusalem. But how many of you guys know Caesar's not gonna stand for that? So he sent General Titus, they surrounded the city, they, um, there was a great famine within, they attacked the city. When they went into the city, they killed thousands and thousands of Jews. And they got to the temple, and what did they do? They burnt the temple down. Now, what's in the temple? Gold, silver. What happens in fire? It melted in between the stones. So what did the Roman soldiers do? In, in, um, in order to maybe make some money on the side. When it all cooled down, they dismantled every stone. They scraped the gold and the silver out, thus fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that not one stone will be left on another. Josephus tells us 1.1 million Jews were killed in the great revolt against Rome. And when Jesus saw all that death, especially the kids, he cried. He sobbed. Okay, it's 11 o'clock. I'm not under any time restraints here, but I will, I will not prolong this. But let me just say this to you guys to help you out here. I'm a moderate, what's called a moderate Calvinist, but I am not a five-point Calvinist. I reject limited atonement, and I certainly reject what's called double predestination, that God predestines some to be saved, and he predestined, here's what I reject, they, he predestined some to be damned to hell. I don't believe that. And you gotta look at the whole counsel of God, that's why I'm always saying, read Chosen But Free by Norman Geisler, so you get the whole counsel of God on this, not just Romans 9. Read everything and come to your conclusion. But let's listen to this. If God, before the foundation of the world, predestined people to be born and then damned to hell, why is Jesus crying over these people? It's a complete sham, 
right? Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's eternal. He was there when election took place. Okay, what does that tell me? That tells me, it's a mystery, right? But free will is a big deal. And we have a choice to receive or reject Jesus. And they rejected him, and that's why he's crying. Does that make sense to you guys? Okay, so he's sobbing, he's weeping, not just because of what would happen in 37 years, but because of what's happening in the hearts of the crowd right then. You see, as I said earlier on that first Palm Sunday, some in the crowd, praise the Lord, they're getting excited about Jesus for the right reason, yes. I so hope if I was there, man, I would have been part of that crowd. But sadly, most of the crowd, they're getting all excited about Jesus for the wrong reason. And to understand what was going on in their hearts, the unbelievers, you gotta understand the history of the palm branches, okay? And so the palm branch was the ancient uh, symbol of Israel of deliverance. It dated back, everybody look at me, here's AD uh, 33, it dates back 200 years to the time of the Maccabees. And I already taught this uh, four or five weeks ago about the origins of Hanukkah. And so the Jewish custom of celebrating with palm branches dates back when the Maccabees led the Jews to rebel, not against the Romans, that's later, but rebel against the Greeks. The Seleucid Empire, which is a a massive um, Greek state, including Syria and many other countries. And so Antiochus, everybody remember this Hitler-like guy? Antiochus Epiphanes, you remember me talking about him about a month month ago? And so um, what happens is that he attacks the Jews, defeats the Jews, he walks into the Jewish temple, he sacrifices a pig to Zeus in the Jewish temple. And so the Maccabees is like, enough is enough. And so they fought back with guerrilla warfare and they defeated the Greek army, the Seleucid army. And so after the Jewish forces took control of Jerusalem, this is 164 BC, after the Jewish forces took control of Jerusalem, after they um, uh, beat and defeated Antiochus Epiphanes, and after they purified the temple because of the pigs that were sacrificed to Zeus in there, they had a party. They were liberated, they were excited, and so they partied hard. Now, how did they celebrate? The apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees tells us. Everybody look at me real quick. If you're Roman Catholic, that's in your Bible. If you're Protestant, it's not in your Bible. Why? Because as Protestants, we believe the apocryphal may be good history, but it's not the inspired word of God. And so this is good history, it's not inspired. Again, I don't have time, gotquestions.org. Type in Apocrypha, you'll learn all about it. Okay, so what happened in 164 BC after the Jews, led by the Maccabees, beat Antiochus Epiphanes and the Greeks? But now carrying green, what's the two words there? Palm branches and sticks decorated with ivy, they paraded it around, singing grateful praises to him who had brought about the purification of his own temple. And so how do they rejoice? How do they celebrate? With palm branches and they're like praise the Lord thank you God for delivering us from the Greeks and thank you Judas Maccabeus for your leadership 
Fast forward about 200 years, you come back to John chapter 12 in the story of Jesus here, and what happens is that you got a situation where the Jews are still being oppressed, this time not by the Greeks, but by the Romans, and once again, they're waving palm branches at Jesus. Why? Why are thousands of Jews, most in the crowd, waving palm branches and getting excited about Jesus? Here's why. If you're listening, say amen here. Here's why, because they want Jesus to join their political bandwagon and be like Judas Maccabeus and deliver them from the Romans, that's why. That's their motivation. What were they shouting? They're shouting, Hosanna, which means save now. Does anybody here think the Jews were saying, save us from our sins? No, they were saying, save us from the Romans. And that leads us to our next point. We're gonna to start to apply this and I'm gonna encourage you guys to put your seatbelts on and stay with me to the end. Jesus did not come to deliver the Jews from a physical enemy. He came to deliver both the Jews and the Gentiles from what kind of an enemy? And give anyone, <clears throat> Jew or Gentile, who would turn to him in repentance and faith, eternal life and abundant life. That's why he came. Most significant person in the history of mankind and the most significant reason why he came, ladies and gentlemen, bottom line, he loves you. I'm I'm pausing because I want that to settle in your heart. He loves you. The crowd wanted him to save their nation Jesus came to save their souls and your soul and my soul. He came to offer them true deliverance, not from the Romans. He came to offer them true deliverance from Satan and sin and death. And how would he do that? This is what gets me excited. How would he do that? Here's how. In five days from Palm Sunday, we celebrate Good Friday. And on Good Friday, Jesus voluntarily went to the cross and he hung half naked between heaven and earth as the Passover lamb, shedding his blood because nothing can wash away my sins but the blood of Jesus Christ. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's why he came, because God so loves the world. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. And not only will he give us eternal life if we turn to him in repentance and faith, but as as believers, if we'll walk closely with him, he'll give us, last two words, abundant life as well. And so that's the good news. The bad news is that most of the people in this crowd, they're excited but they're excited for all the wrong reasons. They wanted Jesus to be their king. I hope you're listening. They wanted Jesus to be their king, not for spiritual reasons, but for political reasons, for militaristic reasons, for materialistic reasons. It was misplaced passion. They got excited about the wrong thing. All right, application time. What are you passionate about? The way to determine your passion is not hard. By the way, how many of you guys know you can't fake God out? So he knows exactly what our passion is. 
And so the easy way to find out what your passion is is you ask yourself these three questions. Number one, what do you often think about? Number two, what do you often talk about? And number three, what do you spend most of your free time doing? Just answer it honestly in your heart and then you'll know your passion. Now why am I saying this? I'm saying this because, listen, I want you to guard your heart and I want you, Matthew 6, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all those other things will be added unto you. And I don't want anything in your heart or your pastor's heart to become a higher priority where we become more passionate about that than him, because that's idolatry. We don't want to have idols in our hearts. Now, how many of you guys know that God has given us all things to enjoy? He's a good God. So I love my sports. I love the Bucks, even though they're three and three. I love the Rays. I love following sports, right? But here's what I gotta be careful of, that that needs to be, even though it's God's given all things to enjoy, that needs to be down here, and my passion for Jesus needs to be through the roof. So I don't know what it is in your life. I could go down so many roads right now, but what is your sports team, or I don't know, what are you guys, what are you guys passionate about? Golf, um, video games, maybe for some of you who are younger, um, social media. How many of you guys know that we spend so much time doing this? Looking at other people's lives that it's all, most of it is fake. Right? Has anybody ever seen a social media post where someone's really actually showing the bad day they're having? No, it's all, everybody's just like. <laughs> best day ever. Social media, sports team, working out a certain relationship, none of those are bad in and of themselves, but if we're not careful, they can become idols in our hearts. I don't know, maybe you're a big video gamer. Some of those video games are atrocious, by the way. But even the more wholesome ones, it can, it's good, right? But it can do this. That person, that special person can become an idol. That activity can become an idol. You guys see where I'm going. So my encouragement is make Jesus Christ number one in your life. Think about, talk about, spend most of your time, your free time pursuing him and his will for your life. Now because we are here in John 12 and because, think about the context, we're talking about first century Jews and their political motivation to get Jesus on their bandwagon, I've gotta say this, okay, are some of you guys ready to be offended? Here we go. It's troubling. By the way, if you get offended, send your email to lholly at calvarypsl.com <laughs> or wprice at calvarypsl.com. It's very, in the context of what we're looking at, it's very troubling to me today when Christians spend a huge amount of time thinking about and talking about politics and spend much of their free time watching biased 24-hour news channels that support their views, and here's the problem, bash the other side. I'm just gonna say, some of the things I see on Fox News is just wrong. I'm conservative, I don't mind admitting it, because I, 
I'm conservative. Not just theologically, but politically, I'm conservative. Okay, but here's what, here's a problem, the problem I have. When people on conservative news channels get in the flesh and start name calling and demeaning and being ugly and blasting people. It's not right, ladies and gentlemen. Go back and read the Sermon on the Mount to learn how we should act as Christians. I'll say it another way. It's troubling to me when Christians are more passionate about following a political party than following Jesus. It's troubling to me when Christians act more like the crowd in Jerusalem rather than acting like true disciples. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? What I mean, it's almost like we grab our palm tree branches, right, and we wave them before the Lord, and we say, hey, Hosanna, save now. Save our political party. Save our idea of what our nation should look like. Establish our kingdom in America. But then when it comes to spiritual things, like walking with Jesus and reading his word and praying, right, and uh, sharing our faith or supporting our local church financially or getting involved in our local church, um, we're indifferent, we're apathetic. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your next point. Please take it to heart. We have to have more passion for Christ's kingdom than for man's kingdom. That's the bottom line. So yes, I'm asking you, some of you guys who are politically motivated to check your heart. I'm not saying don't get involved in politics. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying what place does it have in your heart? And if it's higher than Jesus, you need to repent. And you need to put it back down here somewhere. Because seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said. Now it's true that some political issues in our day are actually biblical issues. So let me be clear as I can be, right, so no one misunderstands me. As Christians, we have got to speak the truth in love, ladies and gentlemen, that life begins at conception. That is not a political issue. That is a biblical issue. That's a biblical issue. How many of you guys know that God is the creator and sustainer of all things? He, he, he sustains the whole universe. And Psalm 139 says that he knit us together in our mother's wombs. So what, what is the atrocity of abortion? It's ripping out and killing what God is shaping in the womb. Now I'll say it again like I say it a thousand times. If you had an abortion, you need to know God loves you and that if you'll repent, here's the thing, as far as the east is from the west, so far will he put your transgressions from you. But listen, after you repent, stand for the truth. Because life begins at conception and we gotta protect the rights of the unborn and we gotta honor the sanctity of traditional marriage. That's a biblical issue. Ladies and gentlemen, the creation covenant is that God made one man and one woman and he joined them together and one man and one woman became one flesh. That is the creation covenant. That is traditional marriage. And guess what? The people in the Bible blew it. It's called polygamy. But guess what? Jesus came later and he set the record straight and went by all the polygamists and went back to creation and said, one man, one woman. Okay, so we stand for that. That's biblical. <clears throat> we gotta promote parental rights in education. 
Moms and dads, please be aware of what your children are being taught in school. That is your responsibility, and get involved. Not just that, we gotta stand against the unnecessary sexualization of our kids. What is going on in our society that our kids are being exposed to all this stuff? So moms and dads, it's time for you to take a stand. Be salt and light, because the kids are your responsibility primarily. We gotta celebrate the gender that God gave us at birth. How many of you guys believe God knows what he's doing? God knows what he's doing. And so if you rebel against these things, you're not rebelling against me or the church, you're rebelling against God. And not just that, never forget this, Christian, we gotta respect all human beings because everybody is made in God's image. That includes the people on the other side of the aisle, no matter what political position you take. And so these are biblical principles and speaking the truth in love about these biblical principles is part of being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And praise God, I'm a history buff. And so I thank God for the United States of America because I know what other nations were like in history. And the absolute abuse of power that took place in history. Ladies and gentlemen, please read history so you can be thankful for America. Guess what? We the people, we the people get to elect those in government who represent us. So please make sure on November 8th you go and vote. That's so important that you do that. This is the country God gave us. And so we happen to have this amazing system of government where we get to be the boss and elect those who represent us. Now, having said all that, I also need to go on the other side and say that Christians, we cross a line when we look down at people from another political party as the enemy instead of people who are made in God's image. That's wrong. All that bashing on news channels is wrong. Not only that, when we get ugly and blast people on social media when they don't agree with our political position, please get off social, social media if you're doing that. You're misrepresenting the Lord. And not only that, when we're more passionate about the person in the White House or the person who used to be in the White House than we are about Christ in our hearts. All of that is wrong, all of that is off base. And so there's a right way to think about and do politics and there's a wrong way to think about and do politics. And I'm all for Jesus number one, politics down here somewhere, but standing for biblical truth. If you wonder whether or not you should get involved in politics or the culture, I have two words for you. William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce. Look him up, you'll be glad you did. Because what I love about William Wilberforce is he was a Christ follower, number one, and then he was a politician, number two. And ladies and gentlemen, in case you don't know, he led the charge in parliament to abolish the slave trade. As an evangelical Christian, he took a stand and was salt and light in the community. And what was the result? Slave trade abolished in Britain before us. Last verse, verse 19. So the Pharisees looked out. They saw all the palm tree branches being waved and they said, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world 
has gone after him. And so in their frustration, the religious leaders, they actually make a prophetic statement here. Because guess what, good news. After Jesus, our Passover lamb, died for our sins, was buried and rose again, he went up, the spirit came down, the church was born, and Christianity spread all around the Roman Empire. And for 2,000 years, it continues to spread across the world, Jews and Gentiles. As the ministry team comes forward, I'll close with these words. On the first Palm Sunday, we're so grateful that many people in the crowd got excited about Jesus and hailed him as their king for the right reason. So here's my question, I got two questions for you as we close. Number one, is Jesus your king? Is he your king? Secondly, five days later after that first Palm Sunday, Good Friday, our Passover lamb shed his blood and paid the price for our sins. The wages of sin is what? He died as our substitute. He absorbed our sin and took the wrath of God against our sin so that we could be forgiven by his blood and he could be our savior. Number one, is he your king? Number two, is he your savior?